We'll now hear argument in our first case set for the calendar, which is 18-56256, Broidy Capital Management, LLC v. State of Qatar. Mr. Coffman, you may proceed. Judge Collins, and may it please the Court, I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal, please. This case raises an issue of great significance in our increasingly interconnected high-tech world. Whether a foreign state can be held to answer in the courts of the United States for a malicious hacking and media distribution campaign aimed at a U.S. citizen and his U.S.-based computers. Qatar argues, and the District Court agreed, that it gets the benefit of sovereign immunity because plaintiffs have alleged some illegal hacking episodes originating overseas. But Qatar's argument misconstrues the FSIA's non-commercial tort exception of 1605A5, and it misconstrues our allegations. In particular, Qatar seeks to apply a strained version of the entire tort rule that is inconsistent with this Court's decisions, especially Olson by Sheldon v. Mexico. There, the Court held that a foreign country's conduct is not immune from suit under the non-commercial tort exception if at least one tortious act occurs in the United States. And here, the complaint and supporting materials allege numerous entire torts occurring in the United States under the Olson standard. We allege two categories of torts occurring in the United States, hacking torts originating in Vermont and torts involving the distribution to the U.S. media occurring in the U.S. Yes, Judge? Who do you allege are the persons who committed those entire torts within the United States? We allege that Qatar, through its agents, through its U.S. agents, committed those torts. And how are agents covered under the text of the statute? Because this tort exception differs from the other tort exceptions in the terrorism clauses in 1605A and B, which specifically add agents, and this one doesn't. How does agent fit into the text? Well, we allege Qatar's involvement in those torts, and this is under A5 has also been read to apply to agents as in, I mean, a perfect example is the Lew case. Lew is a case that involved liability against Taiwan solely because, A, the head of their intelligence agency operating abroad was involved in conspiring, and, B, he sent particular actors into San Francisco. Did we address the entire tort rule in Lew? Did you mention it? It was not mentioned in Lew, but, again, it's a jurisdictional case, and the discussion revolved around, and in the active state doctrine discussion, revolved around Taiwan's involvement and responsibility for the acts. Counsel, if we look at A5, it refers specifically to the foreign state or any official or employee of that foreign state while acting within the scope of his office or employment. How do you add agents to that? Do the agents have to be officials or employees? We just simply get to add the word agents? That seems like a third category besides the state and its officials or employees working within the scope of their employment. Well, Your Honor, we do allege involvement by particular Qatari officials. But not officials in Vermont. The officials, that's right. We allege that in the United States, 
the actions are the actions of agents who are hired by Qatar. Qatar is responsible for the entire scheme because it... Right, but how do you fit that into A5? Let me pull up my copy of A5. Caused by the tortious act or omission of that foreign state or of any official or employee of that foreign state while acting within the scope of his office or employment. Does the employee acting within the scope of his employment include then any contractor that they hire to do something? Well, that's certainly how it's been interpreted. And I don't believe in this case it's been argued by Qatar that there's a problem with our allegations regarding who did what. I understand your argument is that the reference to foreign state would include agents as this has been construed. But what's the significance of that for purposes of the application of the entire tort rule? If it has to be a tort by the foreign state and the agent isn't listed separately, but... Well, there is attribution to the foreign state of the conduct within the United States. But it has to be the tort of the foreign state and not the agent directly. It has to be the tort of the foreign state, although through an agent. Does it mean that for purposes of the entire tort rule that the liability of the foreign state has to be for conduct in the United States? And here isn't the conduct of Qatar that makes it liable for its agent's conduct that occurred overseas? Well, again, I mean, this is similar to Taiwan. And Taiwan, and I recognize we're not talking about the entire tort rule in there, but we are talking about attribution. And the conduct of the assassins was attributed to Taiwan in that case. And so what we are saying is that the agent's conduct in the United States is attributable to Qatar in the United States. And Qatar had it... I'm sorry, Judge Bybee, excuse me. How far would the rule extend? So if Qatar decides to have a party at the embassy and hires a caterer, signs a nice contract with them, and on the way to the party, the caterer runs a red light and injures somebody, is Qatar liable for the actions of its agent? Well, I think this is a different case because Qatar is directing the actions. I mean, if Qatar told them to run the red light, then I think then the action would be attributable. But so we're talking about with respect to intentional torts, that Qatar has been part of a conspiracy and directed the action of its agents. I mean, Qatar... From overseas. Well, in part from overseas, presumably. But we've alleged that the conspiracy was actually entered into in the United States. I mean, all of this has been planned from the Qatari embassy in the United States. The meetings that occurred there, the meetings that involved Nicholas Musin, who used to be a plaintiff in this case, but was dismissed, and we've refiled against him in D.C. But all of that took place in the United States. The identifying of Elliot Broidy as a problem that had to be dealt with, and the decisions to target Elliot Broidy, we've alleged, occurred as a result of those meetings in the United States. Now, was there Qatari involvement, you know, from the top? Well, we don't really know. And I don't think you can presume, you know, who did what in Qatar when what we have alleged is this conspiracy was formed and planned from the Qatari embassy with Qatari foreign agents 
from the United States. So all of that ties to the United States. And what plaintiffs, I'm sorry, what the defendants have contended here is that because of one allegation in the complaint, paragraph 115 of the complaint, which alleges that on two instances on February 14th and February 19th, there were accesses from overseas, from Doha. We have identified that. They have said because of that, well, the entire tort must have taken place in the United States. And first of all, that's not a fair, the notion that this Vermont evidence is somehow inconsistent with that, as the district court held, is not a fair and full account of our allegations. In paragraph, I believe, 181 of the complaint, we specifically allege that there were tortious acts that took place entirely within the United States. Now, the district court said that that was conclusory, but the whole point of the affidavit in this case, or the declaration in this case, was to provide detail on that fact. And what that has alleged is that we've alleged generally that there were thousands of instances of access, two identified from Qatar. Most of them were covered, cloaked through VPN access, as we say in paragraph 114 of the complaint. And in addition, but in addition to the two in Qatar, right around the same time, February 14th from Doha, February 12th, and the days that followed from Vermont, there were instances of access from wholly within the United States. Now, that tortious act takes place in the United States. And that's what Olson, that's the sense that Olson differs from the other courts that have looked at this entire tort rule. It doesn't require every aspect of the tortious conduct to have occurred in the United States. What it requires is a tortious act in the United States. Can you address the discretionary function issue? Sure. Get to my notes on it so I make sure I cover the whole thing. Our view is that the discretionary function exception to the exception doesn't apply here because hacking a private citizen is not at the core of any governmental function that's protected by the discretionary exception because it's a serious violation of U.S. criminal law. And the exception is modeled, as you know, after the FTCA. And the goal of this exception is to place foreign countries in the same position as the U.S. itself would be. And what we suggest in risk and lieu that the relevant inquiry is on whether the foreign states law prohibits the actions and not whether U.S. law does. In lieu, that was the focus of the inquiry. But risk came along and treated lieu as one subset of the inquiry. It said lieu doesn't apply because foreign law doesn't make the conduct there unlawful. But risk goes on to say there are instances 
where U.S. law binds the discretion of a foreign actor. And it looked at a number of cases, including the D.C. District Court's decision in Letelier, which involved assassination in the United States. And the court there said that, well, obviously, that's the sort of violation of law that binds the discretion. We're not going to say that. That's because Letelier said that, you know, it's the sort of thing that's not acceptable anywhere. Right. And theft, as my colleague, Mr. Agusti, says, theft is in the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's exactly. Is there any country whose domestic law prohibits its government from engaging in foreign espionage? Is there any country? Well, of course not. But this is. Now, Judge Collins, step back for a moment. This is much more than espionage. This is attacking a private citizen and destroying him in the media by using stolen materials. This is much more than state-to-state espionage. All you have to do is look at the Attorney General's statement yesterday. The Attorney General announced the indictment of four Chinese hackers that were involved in the Equifax hacks. And this concern about reciprocity, you know, doesn't the United States do this? Well, the Attorney General answered that. No, we don't. The United States, like other nations, has gathered intel throughout its history to ensure that national security and foreign policy determinations have access to timely information, says the Attorney General. But we collect info only for legitimate national security purposes. We do not indiscriminately violate the privacy of ordinary citizens. That's what this is. This is something much different, Judge Collins. I want to save the rest of your time for rebuttal. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for reminding me. I've lost the clock. Thank you, Judge Collins. Your Honors, may it please the Court. To prevail on this appeal, plaintiffs need to run the gauntlet of a number of requirements to have access to the exception to immunity at Section 1605A5. And picking up where we just left off with the discretionary function exception, I'd like to make a couple of points about the nature of that exception and why we submit that it bars plaintiffs' claims in addition to a number of other failures to meet the requirements of the exception. And really there's two main points that I want to make about the discretionary function exception. The first, which is what this Court said in Olson and Holy See, the discretionary function exception is essentially Congress's way of implementing this distinction between public and private acts. What is discretionary for a foreign sovereign are things that go to policy, things that are essentially governmental acts. Olson used the phrase fundamentally governmental. So the basic question is, are these allegations of cyber espionage, which concerned a foreign sovereign's response to a foreign policy crisis, attempts to influence the policy of another sovereign, and to use the tools of what Mr. Brody has variously called electronic warfare, information operations, espionage. Is that a governmental act or is that a private act? And we'd submit that it's quite clear that this is the sort of thing that governments do in their governmental capacity. It's not like an embassy staff member driving through the street and driving negligently on the streets of Washington, D.C. The second point I'd like to make is that this idea that a foreign sovereign lacks discretion to break the law of another state, that cuttery discretion is somehow limited by what United States law says. Now, 
what this court indicated in both Lew and Risk, as Judge Collins alluded to, is it's about internal law. In Lew, quite obviously, the assassination that happened in California violated the domestic law. This court didn't say anything about that. It talked about how the ROC courts, the Taiwanese courts, had said this was a rogue, unauthorized act, and it violates our laws, the internal laws of Taiwan. And when you think about what Mr. Brody is essentially saying, this idea that State A lacks even discretion, lacks the discretion to do something that violates the laws of State B, that's entirely inconsistent with basic notions of sovereignty. To go back to what this court has said about the discretionary function exception as about considerations of policy, that's a policy choice, and it may have implications when one state makes the policy choice to do something that puts it and its officials in violation of the law of another state. There could be international sanctions. There could be diplomatic protests. Risk and the district court opinion in Mattelier acknowledge that there's some limitations on discretion, even if it's not a target state. Sure. I think this case doesn't call for the court to decide what are the outer bounds of that. Of course, Mattelier was talking about assassination. They used the phrase contrary to the precepts of humanity. Assassination is prohibited everywhere, a basic matter of both international law and the domestic law of states. In general, when a state commits an assassination of a private citizen, you don't see states taking credit for that or suggesting that's illegal. Espionage is quite different. There's a famous quote from the 1970s. There's a CIA lawyer testifying before Congress, and he said, espionage is nothing but the violation of someone else's laws. Inherently, when a state conducts espionage, exfiltrates data, whether it's from a public official or from a private citizen who is of interest to the foreign sovereign, this is, unlike assassination, something that states do and that states acknowledge that they do. The United States government has said, we engage in cyber espionage. That does not, per se, violate international law when we do it. So I think what the boundaries are on that, the Latelier example, assassination, that raises interesting questions, but those are not questions that this court needs to address today in order to decide this case. The plaintiff seems to be maybe suggesting that there's a distinction here because he is more of a private citizen. He's not a public official. Is there anything to that? No, Your Honor, I don't think so. I think historically, espionage is that there are private citizens who may have access to information that's of interest to a foreign sovereign. It is something that sovereigns do. That can raise all sorts of diplomatic issues. It can lead to prosecutions. But the idea that I think you suggested that there is sort of an international norm or law or practice that prohibits cyber espionage when a private citizen is involved, there's really no support for that whatsoever. So, again, this is something that can lead to prosecutions. It can lead to policy consequences. But just to step back and think about what we're dealing with here, these types of acts by a foreign sovereign, the basic question, as this court put it in Olson, is this fundamentally governmental? Does this go to policy concerns? Or, by contrast, is it a private act on the order of negligent driving through the streets of Washington, D.C.? And this distinction between private citizens, public officials, 
as alleged, again, the state of Qatar has denied these allegations, but as alleged in this complaint, the allegation is that plaintiffs in this case were viewed as sort of paramount threats to the success of a foreign policy campaign and initiative. And what the allegation is, this is about international sanctions and a diplomatic embargo, a foreign policy crisis of the highest order. The allegation is plaintiff inserted himself into this dispute, was influencing the government of the United States, was a threat to the national security essentially of this foreign sovereign, and the sovereign took these actions that included cyber espionage targeting this individual. Again, the point is not to suggest that this is a true version of the events, but this is what plaintiffs allege. And in this circumstance, to say that this alleged conduct is not governmental, it's private, it falls on the private side of this distinction. That's not what discretion means. I think when you step back and think about in terms of reciprocity, which many courts have said is relevant to interpreting this exception and what it would mean, essentially what it means to say a foreign sovereign lacks discretion, lacks the freedom to make the policy choice to take action in violation of another state's laws, or to limit it to when a target is a private citizen. The United States engages, or at least is reported to engage in drone strikes in Pakistan where private citizens are certainly targeted. And most likely that's a violation of Pakistani law. And that raises all sorts of policy questions about is that good policy, what should the limits on that be. But I don't think anyone would say that because it violates Pakistani law or because private citizens are affected, that that is not a discretionary choice of the U.S. government when it makes that type of decision. As I construe the record, they essentially proffered allegations that some of the hacking took place in Vermont and that some of the handoff of information was done within the United States, emails or by actual hand transfer. Why don't those constitute entire torts within the United States? Sure. And if I could just take those two separately and begin with these allegations, the sort of late-breaking allegations of a few, I think it was 178 out of hundreds of thousands of intrusions that were allegedly originating from Vermont. And I think it's important to focus on what the procedural posture of those particular allegations is. That is not in the complaint. The complaint only identifies Qatar as a source of the hack in general. They did ask in their opposition to your motion to amend and indicated that they would carry those allegations over. So given the liberality of leave to amend, shouldn't we consider that? I agree that that is the question for the court. It is not, you know, did the complaint adequately allege an entire tort based on these Vermont allegations because it's not in the complaint. The question is, you know, was it an abuse of discretion by the district court to deny leave to amend? And what this court has said, yes, you know, leave to amend is liberally granted. But, you know, one thing the district court has discretion to do is to deny leave to amend when doing so is inconsistent with the theory that the plaintiffs have advanced before. And I think it's important 
you know, to be clear about what the district court had before it when it made that discretionary decision. This is not a matter of, you know, there was a sort of an ill-considered offhand statement in one complaint that in a subsequent complaint the plaintiff, you know, tried to walk back from. First of all, this was a second attempt at an amendment. And more importantly than that, the district court had a long record of a TRO proceeding. This was quite an aggressive litigation strategy where the district court saw plaintiffs come in with evidence, with declarations, with briefs, with experts, and repeatedly say that this was something that happened in Qatar. So just to take one example to highlight, because I think it's not mentioned in the briefs, but it's... It's a little hard to read, but he seemed to think that the government was overreaching. He seemed to think that he had to allege that all of the conduct occurred in Qatar and that therefore it would be impossible to complain to now say that part of it took place in the U.S. Was he just mistaken in that? No, Your Honor. I think the district court was saying two things. One, you know, there's this decision by Judge Wardlaw when she was on the district court in the Greenpeace case that construes Olson and has, you know, explains this idea of a continuing tort that transcends, sort of begins in one place, you know, carries into the United States and continues somewhere else. That was one ground for the district court's decision. But the district court also, and independently... I mean, this isn't like the continuous carriage of a body that's been illegally Vermont 
to have emanated from anywhere in the United States in that whole story. What about the dissemination-based torts? Right. And I think, again, and this connects a bit back to where we started this morning with Judge Collins' question about the agents. And a point I wanted to make about that that relates to the dissemination, there's a lot of group pleading and sort of vague assertions about Qatar or through the agent defendants where it's really not clear when you read the complaint who even they are alleging conducted various acts. And the point about dissemination, there's these statements in plaintiff's brief that says, yes, we allege instances of dissemination within the United States. And then you track it back to the complaint, and it is entirely conclusory boilerplate. Or, for example, what the plaintiffs say in their brief, go to paragraphs 121 to 25 of the complaint, and we allege that the U.S.-based agents curated packets of email and then distributed it. Well, when you go to paragraphs 121 to 25 of the complaint, really what it is is a series of allegations about the Washington Post printed this, the Associated Press printed that, and thrown in there is one sort of vague allegation that, you know, after these publications happened, Mr. Muzzin knew something about it. But, again, I think when you actually focus on the allegations of the complaint, there's really no there there even in terms of the dissemination. I see my time is up. So unless there's further questions, we'd submit that for a series of reasons, plaintiffs do not come in with the exception of Section A-5. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Your Honor, about the procedural posture, it's not in the complaint, but we did ask to amend. And the court denied it because, and abused its discretion, because it concluded that our theory that we were adopting was inconsistent with the theory that all this happened in Qatar. Our theory was never that all this happened in Qatar. In paragraph 181 of the complaint, we explicitly allege on information of belief that some instances of unlawful access and theft occurred completely within the United States. Now, that doesn't have the facts, but it is our theory. And we fill in the facts with the allegations, which is, as you say, is a proffer. We were simply saying this is what we are prepared to allege. So this is about the abuse of discretion on the amendment. And we contend that we should have been allowed to amend. You agree that in order to have a chance at satisfying the entire tort rule, you need those allegations? Not on distribution. On the allegations of the hacking, we think Vermont, we have argued, Your Honor, we have argued that there is a reading of the entire tort rule that would say you focus on California. But our principal argument is Vermont on the hacking. But on the distribution, we have alleged specific facts. We've alleged in the complaint in 164 and 129, I think, in two different locations, that there were entire torts that occurred within the United States. If I can continue this, finish this thought, Judge. We've alleged that there were entire torts within the United States. We alleged facts that support that. We alleged the involvement of a U.S.-based company, GRA, that oversaw the hacking. And we alleged this date stamp point. This is important. The date stamp point is that someone used, and we allege this specifically, someone used an e-mail program to download the hacked e-mails from Broidy 
using Broidy's credentials. Every time they went in, sorry, every time they went in, they had to use the credentials. So every instance of hacking was a different intrusion into different accounts and different hard drives. But we've alleged this timestamp point. The timestamp point is very important because the timestamps were different than the Pacific timestamp, where the documents, had they been printed by Elliot Broidy, would have shown Pacific timestamp. These were Central and Eastern timestamps. Counselor, you're over time, but I do have one further question that I do want to ask you. Where in risk, can you point me to where in risk it tells me that I should look at domestic law in judging whether or not the discretionary function exception applies? Because I don't see it. There's a reference to there's no violation of Norwegian law. There's a discussion of Letelier and the action that is clearly contrary to the precepts of humanity. And then there's a statement that although these acts may constitute a crime under California law, it cannot be said that every conceivably illegal act is outside the scope of the discretionary function exception. That statement in and of itself assumes that some acts are within the discretionary statement function. But having said that, the site at the end of that to MacArthur, MacArthur is a case that involved violations of zoning ordinances in D.C. in building an embassy. MacArthur has a footnote that says, well, first, we don't think these are criminal violations. But if they are criminal violations, they're not serious enough. And what MacArthur had said was we think MacArthur read Letelier to say that acts that are malum in se are serious enough to allow liability, to say that they're non-discretionary. And again, this is the Ten Commandments rule. These acts, I mean, this isn't just Judge Brass. This isn't just espionage. This is stealing documents that contain confidential information and destroying an American citizen in the media by leaking them to the media. And those acts of theft are serious crimes. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, counsel. All right. The case just argued will be submitted. Counsel, nice to see you. Thank you very much.